sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Look at what they did with the Clinton email investigation. The FBI agent in charge of the Clinton email investigation hated Trump, liked Clinton, nothing's happened. The FISA warrant uh, came from a uh, document prepared by somebody on the Democratic Party's payroll. And what we're also not talking about is, why don't we talk about the cost of reduced productivity because of people who need to go on disability, because of people who are not able to participate in our economy, because they don't have access to the health care that they need. The NFL's preseason kicked into high gear last night, and a number of players renewed their protests during the national anthem. Their actions included taking a knee or raising a fist. The players' union and the league agreed to hold off on enforcing some new rules while the two sides worked out a resolution. And now, Stacey Washington. Welcome to the program. Thanks for being here today. We are moving on along, and I have breaking news straight from the White House in my inbox here. This is great news for those of us who want to see uh, the Supreme Court fully operational during their session so that they can, uh, you know, rule on cases with a full bench. And this is for immediate release from the Committee on the Judiciary. Chairman of that committee is Chuck Grassley. Grassley has said that Kavanaugh's hearings will begin on September the 4th. This is straight out of Washington, D.C. Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley today announced that the hearing for Judge Brett Kavanaugh to serve as an associate justice on the Supreme Court of the United States will begin on September 4th. Grassley expects the hearings to last three to four days. Opening statements by Judiciary Committee members and the nominee will occur on Tuesday, September 4th. The questioning of Judge Kavanaugh will begin on Wednesday the 5th. Testimony by those who know Judge Kavanaugh the best, outside legal experts, and the American Bar Association is expected to follow. Now there's a quote from Senator Grassley. He says, as I said after his nomination, Judge Kavanaugh is one of the most respected jurists in the country and one of the most qualified nominees ever to be considered by the Senate for a seat on our highest court. He goes on to say, my team has already reviewed every page of the over 4,800 pages of judicial opinions Judge Kavanaugh wrote, over 6,400 pages of opinions he joined, and more than 125,000 pages of records produced from his White House Legal Service and over 17,000 pages in response to the most comprehensive questionnaire ever submitted to a nominee. He's a mainstream judge. He has a record of judicial independence and applying the law as it is written. He's met with dozens of senators who have nothing but positive things to say. At this current pace, we have plenty of time to review the rest of emails and other records that we will receive from President Bush and the National Archives. It is time for the American people to hear directly from Judge Kavanaugh at his public hearing. This is good news because it gives plenty of time for this to be wrapped up and the confirmation to be done before the midterms. And I think it's fantastic that they're actually moving to do this. As September 14th start date for the hearing is 57 days after the announcement of Judge Kavanaugh's nomination. And remember, we were told that it could take, um, you know, a total of 120 to 140 days to complete. And that extends the timeline that was set for the committee's consideration of Justices Sonia Sotomayor, Kagan, and Gorsuch. Hearings for those nominees occurred 48 to 49 days after the president announced their nominations. So uh, interesting. Good news and interesting. So let's get back into, um, well, basically the show sheet. Let's get back to it. Um, I want to first just highlight the fact that It's not Americans suffering from the violence of illegal immigrants coming into this country. Um, And not all illegal immigrants are violent, but certainly even one act of violence by an illegal immigrant is too much because the predicating law that was broken is entry into the country without proper, uh, you know, paperwork. So um, it's Representative Scalise who was the victim of a vicious attack, he and others who were on that baseball field practicing for the congressional baseball game between the Democrats and the Republicans, he was gunned down. And if it wasn't for the Capitol Police, who were only there because a majority whip was in, in, in present, not all senators and representatives have security, um, they, they would have all died. And so here he is talking about his most recent death threat, uh, an assassination attempt that he's received just last week. There's no place for it in politics. I first want to thank, uh, once again, our United States Capitol Police. They were very quick to act. 
uh, when my office received this threat, uh, they sent the information on to Capitol Police. Capitol Police uh, did research, found out that, uh, that this man has uh, had a, uh, some real serious concerns. And it was hard to track him down because he was trying to use aliases. Uh, but ultimately, they found him. And he's in custody, in federal, uh, federal custody. And uh, hopefully, he gets, uh, he gets a serious sentence because you can't allow this kind of of, uh, of threats and violence against people based on their political views. So I'm hopeful that the person that they've now, they've, they've now been able to apprehend him comes to justice as well. But I want to point out that um, for all of the talk about the war on women and the violence of the extreme right and all of that, these people have turned out to be leftists, Bernie Sanders supporters, et cetera, et cetera. A political ideology does not automatically make one violent or more prone to threatening or attempting assassination, but I don't see the media reporting accurately on what's occurring. In fact, the person who was just apprehended for insider training was immediately identified as a Republican, while others, uh, Menendez, remember Senator Bob Menendez, when he was brought up on all of those charges for, uh, I mean, lots, lots of different things that he was doing incorrectly, and the media never identified him as a Democrat. So if it doesn't have to be an identification made for Menendez because he's a Democrat, then why are we identifying this uh, gentleman from New York who's elected and, and is also being tried for insider trading? Why? Either do it all or don't do any. So now let's pivot over to who's going to pay for everything. And here's a hint. It's you. Um, if you don't think you're already paying enough for everything because you're, you are paying for everything as a taxpayer, you're paying for everything. You're paying for everything the federal government does. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is still out there dishing it as good as she can on behalf of democratic socialism. Now, we talked about a little bit uh, yesterday on the show, $42.5 trillion after they've confiscated everything over $90,000. So anything that you earn or own over $90,000 every year, all of your wealth, all of your savings, everything that you've got, over 90 grand would have to be confiscated by the federal government. And then they would still need more money after that because they'd get it all. And then you still have to make more for them to get more. And she still thinks this is a viable alternative for Americans, this democratic socialism. So here she is talking about Medicare for all and how, if you have Medicare for all, you don't have to worry about funeral expenses. I know try to hold in your guffaws then you get into the partisan issue of money, which is, man, do you want to spend a lot of my tax money on these proposals that you and Bernie and others have? Medicare for all, college tuition, maybe even housing, uh, that the Green New Deal that you have, it is all very expensive, especially on the single payer side, mm -hmm. and that it gives people sticker shock. Mm -hmm. Even in Bernie's home state, they got sticker shock. They couldn't get it done mm -hmm. in his state because mm -hmm. of how expensive it is. And that was an 11 percent increase in taxes, 9 to 11 percent. Even that was too much for people. How do you pay? How do you sell it? So first of all, the thing that we need to realize is people talk about the sticker shock of Medicare for all. They do not talk about the sticker shock of, our, of the cost of our existing system. Wow. So first of all, can I just, I mean, how many Americans are out there right now saying, yeah, I want the government to take more of my money so I don't have to worry about funeral expenses? I know there are families in America who are burdened by funeral expenses when a loved one passes away, and I'm not discounting that. But do we all need to give up everything but 90 grand? That, that's the value of your home. We're not, I mean, I, I want to be clear here. When they say every American keeps 90000 so they can spend $42.5 trillion every year on giving everybody everything they mean you keep 90 grand worth of assets cash etc that's the value of your home whatever the rest of it is confiscated by the government and that's just the first year they also would have to add a value-added tax of 87 percent so whatever you pay for your car or for your electrical service or for any service at all that you're paying for, a value-added tax of 87% would be added to that. 87% of the value of whatever you're getting, you'd have to pay that in addition in order to get it. Can you see how the entire U.S. economy would be immediately crippled? Everything would shut down. Black markets would spring up, and then you'd see the anarchy start. Food would not be traveling in 
air-conditioned, refrigerated trucks from place to place and deliveries on Tuesdays and Thursdays for the grocery stores and, you know, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays and Saturdays for the, sh- the Sam's Clubs and the, the uh, you know, big box. I, I mean, we're, we're talking about the complete obliteration of everything as we know it right now. Just completely destroy it and just bring whatever's going on in Venezuela, the eating of the pets and everything, just bring that up here. She had more to say, though, because she's really convinced herself that she's right. It's Ocasio-Cortez, too. I think at the end of the day, we see that this is not a pipe dream. Every other developed nation in the world does this. Why can't America? And that is the question that we need to ask. We have done these things before. We write unlimited blank checks for war. We write a two trillion. We just wrote a two trillion dollar check for that tax cut, the GOP tax cut. And nobody asked those folks, how are they going to pay for it? So my question is, why is it that our pockets are only empty when it comes to education and health care for our kids? Why are our pockets only empty when we talk about 100% renewable energy that is going to save this planet and allow our children to thrive. We only have empty pockets when it comes to the morally right things to do. But when it comes to uh, tax cuts for billionaires and when it comes to unlimited war, we seem to be able to be to, to invent that, num- that money very easily. And to me, it belies a lack of moral priorities that people have right now, especially the Republican Party. Hmm. So my, my response to that is, uh, and help me out here, uh, is she not aware that the Republican tax cut is paying for itself? It's called economic growth. Economic growth, pay, it pays for tax cuts. That's why we love tax cuts, because they pay for themselves. And you get to keep more of your money. It's like a win, 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 win to infinity and beyond win. Yeah, that's why we love it. So again, someone... She's got a degree from a good university, but she still doesn't get it. She does not get that economics based on feelings gives you Venezuela. Government control of the means of production, Venezuela. People who haven't lived long enough to even understand what they're talking about, like her, put them in charge, you get Venezuela. We don't need any more people who don't understand a balance sheet and zero-based budgeting to be in charge of anything. And the fact that she's actually going to take that, what you just heard right there, to Congress, she's actually going to sit in there and be paid by the taxpayers to peddle this nonsense. That in and of itself is a crime. But we have representative government and people are allowed to elect who they want to go and represent them. And apparently she's it. I know it sounds crazy. It doesn't make any sense. But there it is. So I just, you know. I want to be fair. I want to I want to hear all sides. But after hearing so much of what I've had to hear from her and how it's it's not based on any kind of economics we've ever heard of that are factual anywhere. It's kind of unbelievable. Yet there it is. It's still there. And and so she's been getting into just in case you're wondering what she's been up to. It's been getting into these slap fights with people online on uh, Twitter and, and Instagram and so on and so forth. And the reason she keeps getting into these slap fights is because she keeps saying things that don't make any sense. So apparently um, she feels like having to answer questions, people asking her to answer questions, people getting her, um, you know, getting her statements, what she considers to be wrong. That's sexism. So Ben Shapiro, who is a master debater, has actually challenged Ocasio-Cortez to a debate. And he's the editor-in-chief of the Daily Wire. He has his own, uh, you know, wildly popular uh, radio offerings and things like that. And on Wednesday, he offered to donate 10000 to her campaign if she agreed to debate or even discuss any topics that she covers in her campaign on his Sunday special. He said we could, they could even use the money to raise money for a charity. She refused to respond, but after she was documented in her silence, she said, it's like catcalling. I don't owe a response to unsolicited requests from men with bad intentions. And also like catcalling, they feel entitled to a response. That's where she goes when she can't answer. All right, we'll be back with Charles Lehman right after these messages. Stay there. 
When our health insurance renewal notice arrived last fall, my wife and I made the decision to drop our plan. With the monthly premiums and deductible, we'd have to pay $30,000 just to use it. So we did our homework and switched to MediShare. The cost savings are incredible, over $500 a month, and we don't have to pay for services we don't need or don't agree with. Then out of the blue, she had to have emergency surgery. Scary stuff. $150,000 in hospital bills, and MediShare members took care of everything. All we paid was our small portion. I'm a doctor who's been in healthcare for 20 years, and this is one of the most impressive programs I've ever seen. Thank God she's fully recovered. And now we're telling everyone about MediShare. Call 855-PSALM-23 to find out how much you can save on your healthcare. MediShare. Call 855-PSALM-23. That's 855-PSALM-23. Up next, Carol Swain with two minutes to think about it. From poverty to professor, from GED to PhD, a bold Christian speaking truth to power. Here's Carol with today's two minutes. Hello, folks. We've recently had primary elections in Tennessee and other parts of the country. In these elections, many Christians found themselves divided over which candidate was most Christian and which would best serve the needs of the people. The primaries are now over, and now is the time for us to unite around biblically-based values and principles. There are many hurt feelings and wounded egos. How about you? How have you responded to the election night news? Did you gloat when your candidate won, or did you pout and grumble? Pouting and grumbling and unforgiveness are not of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew 5, 9, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, because they will be called the children of God. What about you? Are you a peacemaker? As we watch the decline of our nation, it is critically important that we unite around the candidates that come closest to our values, realizing that none are perfect. As imperfect human beings, we regularly make mistakes that require confession and forgiveness. Unity is important for the body of Christ. The world carefully watches us to see how closely our lives line up with the Word of God. We can be peacemakers, and we can still hold our leaders accountable for their actions. Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen states, As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Let's work together for victories that glorify Christ. To learn more about Carol and the Carol Swain Foundation, visit carolmswain.net. And make sure you follow her on Facebook at Professor Carol M. Swain and on Twitter at Carol M. Swain. You can watch a live stream of the show on Facebook or YouTube at Stacy on the Right. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Hey, welcome back to the program. Head over to AFR.net, hit the subscribe button. Also find American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk on Facebook. You can like those pages, and then you have to select that you want to see them first so that you can get the notifications because Facebook tries to clear up the clutter for you. So you have to unclear it by selecting what you really want to look at. Um, Great content on both of those pages. And, of course, you can find me as uh, we've mentioned, Stacey on the right on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. So right now, I want to welcome Charles Lehman, staff writer for the Washington, excuse me, the award-winning Washington Free Beacon. <laughs> Charles, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about um, this family leave proposal. First of all, how does it work when the government of the United States of America decides we support family leave? Yeah. So since about 1993, the federal government has mandated that all employers give families unpaid family leave. Um, I think it's up to three months. Uh, and the proposal, and this is a proposal that's been kicked around in the White House by Ivanka Trump, who's advising, of course, the president's daughter. And then in the Senate, uh, the opponent of this plan is Margaret Rubio. Um, what they want to do is find a way to implement paid family leave, a system whereby, you know, you aren't just you're taking family leave to take care of a newborn child or uh, if somebody's sick um, and you, aren't, you don't have to give up your paycheck. Uh, so the proposal that Rubio announced, which I've written a little bit about, focuses primarily – the way that it works is um, 
rather than raising new taxes or introducing a new spending proposal or compelling businesses to continue to pay their employees. It allows new parents and other people who want to take family leave to draw on their Social Security payments from the future and then uh, retire a little bit later subsequently. So, for example, if I'm a new parent, I can draw... There's a, there's a complicated formula involved, but something like 70% of my income um, from Social Security for, let's say, about three months. And then when I'm 65, I retire. The retirement age for me is moved up to 65 years and three months uh, to sort of counterbalance the money that I spent when I wanted to take family leave when I was a new father. All right. So... Um... Do you support this idea? Well, I think that there are pros and cons to it. On the one hand, I think that, look, uh, America, like much of the Western world, is in the middle of what we're talking about as a baby bus. Um, we're having fewer kids than we need to have in order to keep growing the population. I think there's a good argument that that's a big problem socially. Um, and a big part of the reason is that when you ask parents why they aren't having kids, it's because having kids is really expensive. If you look at uh, cash transfer programs for families um, in other countries, countries like Hungary or Russia or Singapore, they kind of work. They do okay. Um, and I think that this is a potentially good way to sort of do a revenue-neutral form of that. On the other hand, I am, I think, pretty concerned about adding to the burden of Social Security. Um, it seems to me, you know, Social Security is going to be insolvent come 2034. Mm-hmm. That's going to be a, according to the current projections. That's a big problem. And if a bunch of new people start drawing on their Social Security, uh, I think that that could hasten insolvency. So, you know, I, I think there's a, there are pros and cons to the proposal. So that's what I was looking for. And to be honest with you, um, you know, Charles, I honestly – Anything that doesn't actually add to the bottom line of the federal government and doesn't create a new program that encourages families in the only way that the government can, which is, you know, kind of getting out of the way, um, if it encourages people to have children and to kind of increase their family size and and works, you know, in a way that I, I support that. But my problem is almost every government program we have, it sounded just as good as this one in the beginning. It always sounds fantastic in, you know, when you can put together a video as Marco Rubio has done. And, it, you know, it's like he's talking about this and you can hear how passionate he is about the subject. I've got no problem with Ivanka Trump trying to find ways to make, uh, you know, parenthood more viable for women who've gone to college and gotten degrees and they, ha- they want their career, but they also want to have a family. I have no problem with any of that. But my issue stems from I know a government program in and of itself even when you say this isn't a government program but the government's going to say to employers you have to let people stay off of work for this amount of time and the government's going to pay this money to them there becomes again a new set of unintended consequences that can come to bear that will come back to bite us later I mean I think that the best government family programs are those programs that try to compensate for the ways that the government gets in the way of the family. So um, Rubio is, I think, sort of on a kick right now about family policy. He and Mike Lee a couple of months ago had this expanded child tax credit. Part of the goal of the child tax credit is basically it's more expensive to raise kids and we don't want the tax burden to fall unevenly on families. We want there to be fairness between families and families and people who don't have kids. Acknowledging that fairness may mean that kind of tax cut. And I think when this when this Social Security idea was first so it sort of floated around policy circles eight years ago, seven years ago, something like that. Um, and and the whole idea there was to offset the way in which. Basically, families pay, can be thought of as paying into Social Security twice, um, where I pay into Social Security, and then I'm also responsible for raising my kid who will pay into Social Security. Uh, and the idea is to give families some disproportionate access to Social Security to offset the way that they otherwise are contributing to the program more than their unmarried peers otherwise do in society. Um, so I think that 
think it's a right to every program is unintended consequences, and I can see lots of things that go wrong. You know, paid family leave is almost certainly partially responsible for uh, making it harder for women to get hired because employers know that they might need to take, or excuse me, family leave, um, because they know that women are more likely to take family leave. Um, but on the other hand, uh, I think that, again, those are the best programs are the ones that try to get government out of the way or try to compensate for government's negative impacts on the family. And this potentially does that. Um, and, you know, the other argument is uh, businesses are always going to be considered the family, and it matters in, a, in the sort of fair society that I want that the family is a preserved entity and, and that the family is a respected entity and that we make sure that people can carve out time for themselves and their family. That's the sort of society I think we want to live in. I agree. I do want to live in that kind of society. And I think, you know, for us, because this was, our, you know, my kids are 18, 17, and 15. So when I was expecting our kids and we were kind of going through this, this is what the, you know, my husband's workplace offers. This is what, you know, you, you can do. I was at the time working. So I did actually go on maternity leave for our oldest child and then decided to stay home with the subsequent ones. And we even learned at that point, cause you know, you, you really don't care about the child tax credit until you have a kid. So then you're like, Oh wait, we do get, you know, we're, we're going to get to claim this extra bit cause we now have a child. And so as we began to learn about it, I noticed, you know, there's not a lot offered for, you know, if your wife has a child and you're working, it's not like your your workplace goes out of their way to try to accommodate that. And the longer you stay away from work, the less likely it is that you're going to have the exact same duties when you get back, even when you're promised that. So I, I want to be realistic about this. And it sounds fantastic, but I just... I wish there was some other, you know, how the, the GAO will do, you know, a study of something or, or, you know, the CBO will say this is what the true cost is. I would just want to be so utterly transparently clear and certain that there aren't these weird clawback unintended consequences of doing something like this because it sounds wonderful. I feel like I'm opposed to it. I could be convinced otherwise, but I'm the only reason I'm opposed is because every single thing that has to do with the government is not as well run as the private sector. And Social Security doesn't even have any money in it now. Every day, we're basically paying money out of thin air. We like make the money and pay it based on people who, so the people who work now pay for the people who are retired now when it's supposed to be the people who are retired now taking their own money back out of a savings account that has drawn you know interest and all that. This whole thing is like a Ponzi scheme not the people paying in, but the actual drawing out of the money because it's already been looted. Mm-hmm. Right. And this is really, right. And this is really the problem exacerbated by the fact that uh, Social Security, that the, the distribution of the age in the population right now is such that there are a whole bunch of people who are starting to claim Social Security as the boomers, baby boomers age into retirement. And so people of younger generations are not. There, there are not enough people, say, I think, approaching something like two workers or three workers for every retired person, which is not enough. Um, and I think, you know, insolvency of Social Security is a really huge problem that nobody ever wants to deal with. The best answer that one can give there in the context of a Rubio plan is one of, the, one of the ways that we solve the problem of Social Security is by having more kids. Because um, in principle, you know, uh, as far as one can say, Social Security works. Uh, Social Security works best when there are a lot of young people, not a lot of old people. We're going to mm-hmm. keep having smaller and smaller generations so long as that we aren't having more than two kids per person. We're having more than one kid per couple. Um, that's you know one one of the longer term solutions. Um, yeah, that you know that, that that said, I I absolutely share your concerns. I just think that. From a, from a practical perspective, there are so many different ways in which the families and institutions get short shrift in American policy today that I'm pretty predisposed to like those policies go, that go out of their way to say, yes, the family is good and we want to support it. Um, and I think that, you know, making the choice to stay in the workforce or leave the labor force uh, I, it is good for policymakers to think to the extent they can to think about how they can cushion the choice to stay out of the labor force where, you know, it, it is good to have a society where one parent can opt to stay home. Those kids often do better mm-hmm. over the lifespan if, if both of their parents aren't working. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, 
I think I think it is always right to be skeptical of programs that the government wants to implement. I think that one reason not to skeptical of this program is that short term it doesn't introduce new spending. Um, but on the other hand, like I think where policy will always necessarily policymakers are always going to make decisions. They're always going to be trying to come up with new solutions, and I prefer those solutions that say yes to the family and yes to try and encourage people to have more kids and try and encourage people to you know take three months to their kids because that first few months really matters for how people do with the rest of their lives. Well, you know what? You've gone a long way to moving me into a much more open position towards this because I honestly, I watched the video a few days ago. I I watched it right on your website. I'm on there every day. And I, uh, I, I watched it and I thought, why do I feel like I felt like a little spidey sense tingling like, whoa, what do you mean the government's going to mandate paid and you can borrow it from a, an account that's already empty? I have to say that where the rubber meets the road for me is something that we talk about often on this program, Charles, and that is that we don't have enough young couples having enough children to, you know, replacement rate 2.3. We're well below that now at 1.7. And we need to be ratcheting that number up, not down. And sometimes the government does do a good job of incentivizing behavior. Often that behavior is not the behavior we want, but the government can actually incentivize people to do things. So if this would go a a ways into making people more comfortable, um, I'd I'd love to see it. I I don't know what I would have done, though, to be quite honest with you, if my husband had stayed off for 90 days when I had a baby, that I'd he wouldn't have stayed off that long. I think he probably would have lasted three weeks, maybe, maybe four. And then he would have wanted to go back to work, not because he doesn't like us or anything, but he just would have wanted to be working. And it was nice that he went to work and then he came home in the evening and, you know, I was home with the baby all day. It was once you get past the initial stage of being, you know, postpartum, you don't have to have two people at home. So I do think this, this is worth looking into further and, uh, especially if the numbers are supported that would show that it would actually make a market increase in people deciding to have children, then it's something that possibly could be good to try. Um, you you certainly have some good arguments for it, I have to say, and I, I appreciate you coming on today and sharing the information and for the work over there at the Free Beacon. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Glad, glad to appreciate it. Thanks for All having right. me. Sure. Thanks, Charles. I'll talk to you again soon. Have a great weekend. That was Charles Lehman, staff writer for the Washington Free Beacon. Um, We love having uh, our experts on from the websites that we like to go to a lot. Um, So I have to say, we're now in the end of the first week. We survived. I survived. And I thought it was a good week. And I look forward to the show getting better and, and being even more fun than it already is and having more great guests. And um, I encourage you, we do have a contact form at StaceyOnTheRight.com. If you have tips, story tips, or interview tips, or things that you want to share, you can always reach out that way. Uh, I see those emails myself. I, I read them myself, and, and it's always a pleasure to get to interact with people. And um, we have Friday. It's, it's Friday, which is interesting. We have a lot of just really quick news hits. Um, chairman of the RNC, Rona McDaniel, actually said we're ready to defy history this November. She believes that they're running the largest field program that the RNC has ever had, training over 20,000 volunteers to go knock doors and engage with voters. And she's saying that they're in 28 states right now and they have 540 staff on the ground. And even though history tells us that the party in the White House loses in the midterms, she's ready to defy history. So we'll see what actually comes of that. And yesterday was the day that they had Um, kind of like both candidates for the Senate in the state of Missouri went to the Missouri Farm Bureau and they worked and were interviewed individually by a committee of individuals on the Missouri Farm Bureau. Uh, They have a committee that that does their endorsements. And today the Missouri Farm Bureau has announced that they've endorsed Josh Hawley for the U.S. Senate. That does not automatically mean he's going to win, but the Missouri Farm Bureau does have an extensive network of individuals who use their insurance services and are farmers or landowners who um, listen to the recommendations that they make. So I will be bringing news from both ends of the political spectrum on the U.S. Senate race here in the state of Missouri and, of course, all, the, all over the country um, as news breaks and as time permits. Um, right now, we're going to go to the break. And when we get back, yes, we're going to talk about players taking a knee and the president's tweets about the players taking a knee. 
Yeah. Gird your loins. We'll be right back. This is Just a Minute with Stacey Washington. California leads the way in what not to do with their latest Band-Aid for fatherlessness, paying those most likely to commit a crime a stipend of up to $1,000 a month. Mayor Michael Tubbs faces a tough situation in his city. Stockton, California has persistently high crime and poverty. His solution isn't one that he came by lightly. He grew up with an incarcerated father and a mother who often used public assistance. He worked hard and graduated from Stanford. Tubbs believes that giving people a leg up financially by incentivizing good behavior will make the difference. This is what happens when society normalizes and promotes the wrong behaviors. We must return to our traditional viewpoints on marriage and family. Kids with fathers in the home are far less likely to commit crimes leading to incarceration. Proverbs 4.1 says, Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight, for I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. I'm Stacey Washington. Find out more at StaceyOnTheRight.com. Yo, yo, what's up? Hey, hey what's nothing up? much, man. Just trying to listen to this last song for the music final. Yeah, I think I'm going to fail for the most part. I haven't even listened to it. Ugh, yeah, me neither. I've been too busy listening to The Word on the Street. <laughs> the, the Word, word on, on the street. street? Wait, you guys haven't heard? No, I haven't heard of not it. Me. Not that one. Well, check this out. There is only one true word, and that is the Word of God, which is what you will hear on Word on the Street, hosted by me, Victory McIntosh. Tune in as we discuss some of the latest hot topics and life issues and filter them all through the Holy Word of God. It is possible to live righteous before the Lord and enjoy doing it. Tune in Saturday mornings at 9 Central Time. You don't want to miss it. I'm Chad Pergram with the Speaker's Lobby. The Senate Judiciary Committee is processing hundreds of thousands of documents pertaining to Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh. Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley plans a confirmation hearing in September. The vote on the floor could be tight. Republicans hold a narrow 51 to 49 edge over Democrats in the Senate. Effectively 50-49 with GOP Arizona Senator John McCain out. So far, most analysts are focused on whether Democrats like Heidi Heitkamp of North Dakota and Joe Manchin of West Virginia will vote for Kavanaugh. And if Republicans like Susan Collins of Maine and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska will vote no. However, there's a bigger wild card. Democratic Alabama Senator Doug Jones. Jones is a conservative Democrat in a state which supports President Trump. And Jones could be the difference in a narrowly divided Senate. I am prepared to vote for a presidential nominee. The question is whether or not I'm prepared to vote for this particular conservative justice. Jones says he doesn't see himself as a rubber stamp for President Trump. And despite being the key vote, contends he doesn't feel any pressure. With the Speaker's Lobby, Chad Pergram, Fox News. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. 24 of the 32 NFL teams were in action last night. Granted, it was just the first preseason game, but we did see several player demonstrations during the national anthem. President Trump tweeting this morning, the NFL players are at it again, taking a knee when they should be standing proudly for the national anthem. He went on to tweet, stand proudly for your national anthem or be suspended without pay. In Miami, Kenny Stills taking a knee, while defensive safety Robert Quinn, you can see him raising his fist in the air. Philadelphia Eagles say, Malcolm Jenkins also raising a fist during the anthem. The NFL said on Thursday it will not discipline players for any protests during the national anthem while it attempts to reach a resolution with the NFL Players Association over its anthem policy, which they're working on right now. But the league reiterated that for now, players and personnel on the field are expected to stand during the presentation of the flag and performance of the anthem. Personnel who do not wish to do so can choose to remain in the locker room. The teams are also working on their own individual policies. Hopefully they get it done before the season starts, which is four weeks from yesterday. But if you have a league policy and you have a team policy that don't go together, there is no policy. Well, and the Jets uh, acting owner said that if there is an NFL policy where the players will be suspended or fined, he's going to pay for it. So it's all to be determined. (laughs) Yeah, I personally wish that the president wouldn't tweet about this because we have such other really, really pressing issues. And I I think, again, 
he's going to do whatever he wants. But I think this is kind of a waste of his valuable, you know, 55 million people follow him on Twitter. There's other stuff I would love to see him engage on. Um, and he does a great job. And you guys know I've, I've covered that here in the program. I gave a, a running list uh, a couple of days ago of just how fantastic he's been so far on the issues. He's been far more conservative than, in my opinion, a John McCain or a Mitt Romney would have been because they would have caved on some very key things that the president refused to give up on. And when he stood his ground, he won. And over and over and over again, he's shown that if you're just willing to keep pressing the issue, whether it's with our foreign leaders or international relationships, North Korea, regulations here at home, the business part of the tax reform package, the fact that he's going to go at it again and do tax reform part two, these are things that Mitt Romney and John McCain would not have pursued. They would have caved at the first sign of resistance. And so, you know, credit where credit is due. But I do think the the tweeting about the NFL distracts away from these much more serious accomplishments. Um, we'll see if he continues to go forward with it. He seems to really have a, you know, a, a thing about the NFL and um, doing what, that whole bit. Now, in news that's funny and, and really just, I was laughing. A, a friend of mine texted this to me this morning. Um, and it is, it's a story about this conservative artist he's in Hollywood and he's done these huge graphic portrayals of politicians before he mocks leftist politicians in the state of California and he kind of balances out the inequality that exists in California for the conservative viewpoint so you've got the story has been developing over the past few weeks with unhinged people on the left taking sledgehammers and destroying the president's star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Now, I'm not sure what they think this does to President Trump. Like when he hears that his star has been destroyed, does it decrease his power? Like on Super Mario, when you bump into one of those other little animals, the turtles, and then you you shrink down some and you're no longer super. That's not how this works. But they've destroyed the star twice. So, yeah, this guy replaced them. Now, these are laminated vinyl stars and they're, they've been placed. They all say Donald Trump. They look, I mean, they're, it's very hard to tell that they're not really real stars. These vinyl stars have been laminated onto empty spots around stars who hate Donald Trump. And some of the tweets that were sent out by the, the site that is, uh, there's a Twitter account. It's so it's it's like this fascinating story. There's a Twitter account that's been covering this. And the Twitter account actually has been kind of tweeting out like, you know, mocking the people who hate Donald Trump and don't want his star to be there. So the Twitter account that's covering this is it's it's for the faction. So at the faction 1776 posted videos of men dressed as construction workers, and they were placing dozens of laminated replica Donald Trump stars along the Hollywood Walk of Fame. The sophisticated operation involved the stars, which look identical to the real stars, being placed in various arrangements around the stars of various left-wing activists like Rob Reiner. Now, here's what's so funny about it. The Twitter handle is said to belong to the famed street artist artist Sabo. He's the one who does these very in-your-face, satirical paintings and and he'll do um you know the the graphic art that you'll see on the back of a park bench or a city bus bench and they have these inserts that you can put in he's put inserts in there um and so he's tweeted out he says take down his star and we will descend upon you with 30 fresh new stars and then he tweeted we will further spread trump derangement syndrome by installing a never-ending stream of stars (laughs) (laughs) so um i think it's funny because the west hollywood city council actually voted that president trump's star should be removed because they're tired of replacing it and also because they have trump uh derangement syndrome they say that they disagree with trump on moral and political grounds now remember they have stars who have been commemorated on the hollywood walk of fame who have committed adultery who've committed to suicide who've admitted to drug abuse who've been accused of sexual harassment and sexual assault, their stars remain. But Donald Trump should come down. Okay. So the uh, interesting fact about the West Hollywood resolution is that it's a ceremonial resolution. 
The city of West Hollywood has no jurisdiction over the star. The jurisdiction over the Trump star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame actually belongs to Los Angeles Tourist Board. And experts say they're unlikely to do anything to remove the star. Why? Well, we don't know because they haven't weighed in. But Kevin Spacey, Bill Cosby, Michael Jackson, those stars all remain in place untouched in spite of multiple rape and child molestation allegations and the unfortunate conviction of Bill Cosby in this most recent case that he's just gone through. See how see how reality just keeps Trump derangement syndrome from fully achieving its goals. You can't get full synergy when you have other people on the Hollywood Walk of Fame who've been accused of and and one person convicted of actions that the president has no there are no convictions. Sorry. So you can say whatever you want, but no convictions. So yeah. That brings me to our last one. I and this is going to get your dander up, but your blood will be pumping and you can go take a nice walk outside after the show. Uh, it, yeah. University of Minnesota. Now, I know what you're thinking. What could be wrong? What could possibly be the issue? Well, they're considering a policy on misgendering. Uh, in other words, if you're a student there, students on the first day of school, this has already happened to our oldest, our oldest child. Um, when you go to class the first day, what they do is as a part of your taking attendance, they'll have everyone go around the room and state what gender they'd like to be referred to as Z, V, um, you know, non-gender, whatever. Here are some of the options. He, him, his, none, prefer not to specify she, her, hers, they, them, theirs. So if you refer to a single person as a they, them or theirs, because they have more than one thing in them. Um, and, and others, it's, it's not like there's, um, it's not like there's like any sense to this. You can even declare whatever, like make up a word and that's your gender. You can do that too. So what they're doing is at the University of Minnesota, they're considering this draft form of a new gender policy and the draft form would make it possible for a biological male to not only shower and share locker rooms with women if they declared there were a woman, but they would also be assigned by their declared gender to the dormitories. So if you, let's say you're a freshman, you're incoming, you're expecting to be paired with a girl as your roommate because you're going to share a bathroom, you're going to share a bedroom where you would dress, you expect to be in a room with another girl. You get there and you're standing there looking at a biological male who's wearing a dress, has a beard, has an eyeshadow, has hair curled. You go and object to it. This policy would mandate that you would be expelled. You either have to stay in the room with a man or be expelled. You could also be expelled for calling someone whose gender is Z. You, if you say, oh, I heard her question and I'd like to add, piggyback onto that or I'm wondering about that too. She's right. You could be expelled for saying that. Now, obviously, this is a free speech consider, concern. If you can be expelled for simply stating something that's not criminal or I mean, the criminalization of speech is what this amounts to. So some people have already made it clear that they're not sure if this policy can stand. But my question really surrounds just the absolute inanity of having a university implement policies like this that are invariably going to mean fewer students enroll because they don't want to spend all your, think of all the things you have to go through. You have to apply, get approved, work through your finances and your financial aid, get all of that lined up, go to the university, attend the university. You're invested there now. You've moved in. You've got all that stuff your parents helped you move in, or maybe you're an adult. You're, you know, a whole truckload, van load, whatever. You move into the dorm, you get settled in and you misgender someone who is clearly mentally ill and they expel you from the school and you got to go start somewhere else. Not to mention the negative mark on your grades and everything, your, your transcript, because you were expelled. Why would anyone want to submit themselves to that? And this is the crazy pants, inane, ludicrous, you know, pants on fire type stuff that parents have to put up with. And make no mistake about it. I know as a mom of two girls, I, our son too. I don't want my son in a dorm room with a woman who is convinced that although her body is a female body, she's a man. She dresses like a man 
and she's going to be in there at the same time my son is, you know, getting ready for bed. And, and I don't want that. Why would any parent want that? And so just that statement means, well, Stacy's a bigot. Stacy's afraid of, she's got homophobia. She's got transphobia. I'm not afraid. This isn't about fear. It's about wanting control over the environment where your kids are going to be. And anyone who, um, you know, anyone who says, well, it's just because you're bigoted, what they're doing is they're, they're deflecting. They're actually trying to make this, the, the issue me and my concerns or other parents and their concerns. Anyone who has a concern about their child, that's what they want to do. This is what we're dealing with right now. And again, universities that are having trouble with freshmen coming in and being prepared to do freshman level work. Universities are having to deal with parents who literally think they can drive down to the university and negotiate their kids' grades. Parents who call the university and ask to speak to professors. They want to try to change what the professor has told their kid they need to do to improve their work. And then on top of all of that, they have to deal with an increasingly mentally ill population that's coming in and trying to basically destroy the university because that's what this amounts to. Forcing a girl to live in a room with a man she does not know who also thinks he's a woman. We don't even know what else could possibly be wrong with him. How does that increase or help with recruiting quality students who want to come to your university and get an education? Because that should be the primary goal of uh, policies that you implement at at a university. First primary mission is to make sure that the university is educating students and giving them a quality product that they can utilize to go out and start their professional careers. That's that's primary goal one. Goal two is to have the entire campus environment be conducive to learning and to creating a collegial atmosphere in which kids can grow, increase their critical thinking garner work skills and life skills that will help them when they reach the professional world. This does not do that. I mean, again, and I hate to just harp on that one portion, but is there anybody else who just looks at like the possibility you show up to school, you've got all your stuff, you brought your parents and your siblings and y'all are all we're getting, you move into the dorm And you move in, you bring your first piece of luggage up and your little dorm microwave and your Keurig and you put your stuff on the floor and try to figure out which bed is yours. Because all of these dorms, like there are very few campuses that have every single dorm is single occupancy. Most freshman dorms are double or triple or even quadruple occupancy where you're living with at least one other person. Sometimes it's four people and you have one bathroom that's split into two. I mean, come on. You get there, you go into the dorm room, you put some of your stuff down and you turn around and in come some people and you're like, oh, my roommate. And on the form that you were given, it said your roommate was Jenny Jones. And so you reach out to shake hands with the girl and no, no, Jenny is, this is Jenny. And you reach over to shake that hand and it's a six foot two tall, 250 pound man with lipstick and some uh, camo leggings on. Oh, you better believe we would be picking up our stuff and moving back out of that room and going down to the front desk and getting another room. And if it meant expulsion, then we'd just be packing all our stuff back into the vehicle and starting over again. And attorneys would be called because that is ridiculous. How do you put a stop to it, though? It's like these places have to go out of business. Anyway, that's the show. (laughs) And that's the week. You guys, God bless. Have a fantastic weekend. Lord willing, be back with you fresh and bushy-tailed on Monday. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast do not necessarily reflect those of Urban Family Talk, Urban Family Communications, or American Family Association.